Hi, I'm Douglas Haynes, your Monday host of A Public Affair. We love creating this public space for in-depth conversations about education, ecology, food, and so much more. To keep these conversations going, we need your support. Go to wortfm.org slash donate. Thank you. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio. Welcome to a public affair and happy Labor Day. I'm your Monday host, Douglas Haynes. We have a very special Labor Day show today focused on the history and contributions of migrant farm workers in Wisconsin with celebrated activist Jesus Salas. His new book, Obreros Unidos, The Roots and Legacy of the Farm Workers Movement, tells the compelling story of his family's journey to Wisconsin from Texas and how he grew into a leader in the movement for justice for Wisconsin's farm workers and Latinos more broadly. Jesus Salas also taught at Milwaukee Area Technical College for many years, UW-Madison and UW-Milwaukee, and served on the University of Wisconsin System Board of Regents. Jesus Salas, it's a real privilege to have you with us in the studio here today on Labor Day. Welcome to A Public Affair. Oh, well, thank you very much for the information. It's wonderful to be here, and as you say, in particular, on the Day of the Worker, the Labor Day. Absolutely. And I want to welcome our listeners as well. We'd love for you to join our conversation today. If you have a question for Jesus Salas about his work as a labor organizer and advocate for migrant farm workers, or want to share a personal story related to the farm worker movement in Wisconsin, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also reach out to us on Twitter or Facebook. So, Jesus, the occasion for our conversation, in addition to Labor Day today, is your wonderful new book, Obreros Unidos, The Roots and Legacy of the Farm Worker Movement, which uh, is sort of a combination of a memoir telling your own personal story, but also this larger story of reporting on the growth and legacy of this movement. Tell us what led you to write this book and what you hope uh, readers will take away from it. Well, uh, the... uh, the, uh as, as you noted, I uh, started organizing farm workers in the uh, in the '60s, and we published a union newspaper. So I started writing writing about uh, migrant issues, a uh, little bit more polemical than uh, than what's in the book. Uh, when I uh, uh, worked at the Milwaukee Area Technical College, uh, teaching adult learners, uh, I wrote. But uh, what was demanded there was a response to how we teach adult. Uh, 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 Spanish-dominant learners, so we wrote curriculum. Uh, I never stopped writing, but it was just in different forms of writing. But it wasn't until I retired uh, uh, that I started uh, focusing on this type of writing or this, speaking of the roots and legacy of uh, of the farm workers' movement uh, and uh, what we had, uh, uh, what we've been challenged by and what we achieved. Yeah, and so um, you tell this story that is both personal, your family's origins, and then this broader story of the political and social implications of that movement. If there was one thing you would say you want readers to really remember after they read this book, what would it be? Well, the contribution that uh, migrant farm workers, first of all, made to the state of Wisconsin's economy, 
The uh, there were at the time that we were migrating in the late fifties, early sixties, there were a, a, over a hundred thousand migrant workers coming to the Great Lakes region, to f over fifteen thousand to the state of Wisconsin. The uh, we enhance uh, Wisconsin's agricultural economy, becoming a major producer in key vegetables, corn, the production of corn. Uh, canned uh, peas, uh, uh, a number of other uh, uh, potatoes, uh, 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 harvesting uh, fresh potatoes, et cetera, and other, and other uh, crucial cubs that were feeding the uh, Midwest of the growing Midwestern mm -hmm. cities in the, uh, in the Midwest. But most important on Labor Day, we'd like to talk about the contributions that we made to the labor movement. Mm -hmm. At that time, uh, uh, farm workers are excluded from the National Labor Relations Board uh, by the Wagner Act, and only two states in the union, that is Hawaii and the state of Wisconsin, had uh, passed correspondent legislation that uh, not only provided uh, industrial workers with their own uh, uh, Employment Relations Commission, but was not close to uh, to the farm workers. So we were able to organize the farm workers into unions because the Wisconsin law allowed us to do so. And uh, there were a number of activities during those five years that we depended on uh, the Wisconsin Employment Relations Commission, the board that was uh, would uh, supervise the relationship between the employer and employees. And so that was uh, uh, most significant because it was the only activity that was going on in the state. Chavez was in California. Cesar of, Chavez. Cesar Chavez uh, in Dolores Huerta in California didn't have a labor relations board in the state. They were excluded from the Wagner Act, so they had to use a national grape boycott that took five years to get the grape growers to the negotiating table to improve uh, 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 wages and working conditions. We didn't have to. We had other issues that I'll talk about, mm -hmm. but uh, but just to give you an example, that uh, we were the only activity. We were the Midwest and perhaps in the whole United mm -hmm. States where farm workers were being uh, uh, protected by our labor relations board in their in their organizing activities. And you're talking about the 1950s and 60s, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yes, my uh, my uh, my uh, grandfather crossed the border in uh, in 1906 to Crystal City, Texas, what they call the Winter Garden region. Artesian water had been uh, had been found, and so large tracts of land were being subjected to agriculture, the agricultural economy that we now recognize as a Winter Garden uh, region because they're able to uh, produce crops in the winter where we have very mild winters, and uh, and. Uh, uh, um, the Great Depression dislocated these relationships between my grandfather, who was a sharecropper, and then that was the first generation of migrant workers, my grandfather having to leave the multi-generational settlement they established by the borderlands, go up to the Texas counties and to the Panhandle, and that's where he shows my dad how to uh, how to get up here to Wisconsin. So my father comes here in the 1940s. So that's uh, the second generation of migrant workers. And we, uh, 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 the war stops the uh, migrating because of the rationing of gas and, and automobile parts, et cetera. So we don't join the migrant stream until the uh, 50s. And for the next 10 years uh, are part of the Midwestern migrant stream. And tell us more about that migrant stream and path. It's, it's a really... 
fascinating story of how families identified these stops along the way and, and where they were and what they were doing. Yeah, I assume that these stops this, uh, uh, that we made, it was a cycle because um, they were made in the 40s when my father and other, and other families started coming up here because by the time that we joined in the 1950s, it had already been established. We'd drive from, uh, from uh, Crystal City, Texas by the borderlands 30 minutes from the border to Henry, Illinois, where we would uh, harvest uh, asparagus. Asparagus sprouts uh, would come in as soon as the thaw uh, would uh, remove the ice from the from the ground, and they start sprouting. So we were there for the early, very early spring. From there, we'd come to Hartford, Wisconsin, hoeing and thinning sugar beets. And this was where herbicides were being used, so we, we had to do this all by hoeing, mm-hmm. hoeing and thinning. And then from the hoeing and thinning of the sugar beets in the west of the Kettle Moraine area, we'd go up to the central sense area where we'd cultivate the cucumbers and we'd stay there until the end of September go to the lower lakes region and and pick uh, tomatoes until the frost would chase us down again on the way home we'd stop at the upper Mississippi Delta early cotton harvest and then to the late cotton harvest in the panhandle and get back home sometime in November so Mm -hmm. And this was an annual cycle. An annual, an annual cycle. Well, it got adjusted because uh, we gave up, uh, uh, unless the economic conditions uh, uh, said otherwise, but the housing conditions in the cotton harvest were horrible. And there was no, we worked basically out of our vehicles. There was only, you know, very, very, very poor housing facilities. And of course, not only for us, but African-Americans who were are harvesting in the, in the Delta. So that, uh, that we only did that for a couple of years. In the, in the uh, hoeing and thinning sugar beets, the conditions were brutal because the, the, the hoeing was done with the long hoes uh, for the adults. But we didn't have that upper strength. Anybody has used a long hole to uh, clean their garden, knowing that uh, you know that you have to use the upper body strength to be able to claw the uh, the hole into the ground and remove the noxious weed or grass from the from the from the garden. And children couldn't do that. The, this is a, the the what we need to remember. This is this is a, the workforce is a family. We all worked in the field, so we as children could not handle the long hole. So our fathers used to cut the long hole into to uh, 18 or 20 inches, and they call it the cortito, the short one. And there we'd use it like a pendulum, mm-hmm. where we'd get on top of the sugar beets and we'd swing it, and you, you know, on your back, swinging the hole, you know, and you gotta, you know, you couldn't see. Sometimes the weeds wouldn't allow you to hit the uh, the uh, sugar beets. We'd hit a stone, and your hand would just ring out uh, uh, from hitting that stone. And it was almost like, you know, and at night you couldn't sleep well because the whole part of your body would just ache from it. Couldn't walk. Uh, you'd just take some time from just being bent over, uh, you know, all day uh, hoeing and thinning. Uh, uh, it was, you had to take uh, some time to get your back straightened out and walk properly. But it was, uh, I described that uh, in the early part of the chapters. Uh, and uh, uh, the, uh, the way the crews, like in the, in the cotton fields, the African-Americans were segregated from us. In the, cotton, in the cucumber harvest here in Wisconsin, there were uh, crews from uh, the Texas Valley, from Laredo. We were from Crystal City, so we were all broken up into different crews. And the older males would be on the outer ring of the crew. Then it would be our older brothers. And I we, I started migrating when I was seven, so all the younger children would be close to, to their mothers and the unmarried women. So those first couple of chapters in the book, I basically described the family workforce 
concentrated on the women because these were the these were the uh, uh, the workers that were in front of me. This was a part of the crew. I didn't have anything to do with the adult males who were in the other end of the of the of the crew. Uh, so I speak of my aunt, my tia Ramona, who were one of the most productive workers uh, uh, in the fields where we were uh, uh, picking asparagus or hoeing and thinning sugar beets. A tremendous workers and. Uh, spend a lot of time describing the working conditions that they suffered. And uh, not only did the women have to work all day in the fields, but then they would go back to the camps, right? And yes, have to on do their, domestic on work. Under very poor conditions in the asparagus, we had no uh, we had no running water. We had to pump the water. Uh, uh, the uh, the uh, the the nursery was owned by a gentleman by the name of Potter, and he had hired this uh, this uh, army veteran who had hooked a, a, a belt to a tractor to the hand pump and would uh, start the tractor up early in the morning. I think he was trying to wake us up so mm. we could get out there in the field because asparagus uh, has to be picked in the fresh of the morning in order to be taken 30 miles to the street of Wisconsin to be uh, canned freshly. And uh, and he'd do the same thing at night. He'd come in and, and start the tractor so we'd have running water to wash ourselves. And this is the coldest water I had ever bathed myself in uh, because there was no way to heat it. He'd uh, had this open-air tank the sun would uh, try to get the chill out, but it was still, uh, you'd be uh, washing yourself uh, with your teeth chattering. It was so cold. Uh, very unlike the waters uh, down in in South Central, in South Central Texas. But uh, uh, the women had to come in after work and heat that water, uh, wash our clothes, uh, prepare our food, put us to bed, and then wake up at uh, dawn again and do that the whole season uh, of the asparagus. And uh, I speak about those conditions. Yeah. You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with Jesus Salas, author of the new memoir, Obreros Unidos, The Roots and Legacy of the Farm Workers Movement, published by Wisconsin Historical Society Press. If you have a question for Jesus Salas about his work as a labor organizer, educator, advocate for migrant farm workers, or would like to share a personal story related to the farm worker movement, please do give us a call here on this Labor Day at 608-256-2001, extension 9. So, Jesus, you've told such a beautiful story here of your families um, joining this migrant stream back and forth and then eventually deciding to stay in Wisconsin, right? Let's let's jump back in there about why your family decided to stay, and, and that will lead us to your getting eventually involved in the labor movement. Yeah, the, the, my, my father first came to Wisconsin in 1942, uh, 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 again, harvesting, uh, I mean, hoeing and thinning sugar beets west of the Kettle Moraine area, Hartford, Wisconsin. He, he brings his younger brother, uh, Julian, who uh, signs up for the Selective Service at Terrace 18, and he serves with the Wisconsin Red Arrow Division. Uh, uh, that uh, compels the family to go back to Texas because my grandmother and my aunts and uncles are all down there. And uh, during the war, the the uh, the gasoline is ration parts are uh, you know the the industry supports the war. It isn't uh, uh, for migrant workers traveling up and down uh, the country. But we start again in uh, now as a whole family. We're now six member family for the ten years that I indicated in those. Uh, cycle that I uh, that I mentioned earlier, 
uh, my father always loved Wisconsin. I said after 1942, and we we he uh, 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 had at least an abandoned farm uh, uh, as a means of uh, relocating here, without a single implement. Uh, we had this wonderful neighbor. I still remember. I'm going to mention it. It was Meyer Farm, who actually would come in and help us plant because uh, we thought we'd plant our own cucumbers and sell them to uh, to Libby's rather than uh, work for for a grower. The canning company. The canning yeah. company, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, but uh, we didn't have the planters. We didn't have you know. We had a disc and a thing, and then the, the cultivation of the cross require uh, rotation. We didn't have a trasher to come in and uh, harvest the rye or whatever. So uh, uh, while uh, living, we lived about ten miles from Watoma. While shopping in Watoma, there was an empty uh, uh, restaurant. Uh, a poor lady had owned it before, had hung herself in the kitchen, and nobody wanted locally wanted to move in. And my dad said, come on, let's move in there and see if we can open up and sell tacos to the migrant workers and the tourists that come into the area. We almost went on the first strike, my mom and I and the kids. Nobody wanted to, <laughs> uh, to move into that place. Uh, uh, bad vibes, right? But we moved there, and I uh, finished uh, high school two years, went on to uh, Oscotch, followed my brother there. Uh, uh, and as I'm waiting on tables— To the uh, state college. To the state college. At that time, there were only about 3,000 students at Oscotch. Uh, uh, but while I'm waiting on tables in my father's restaurant now in the second year, these people from Madison start uh, approach me and says, yeah, you're one of the solids that used to be a migrant worker. Will you help us uh, establish this uh, demonstration child care center that we want to start in Red Granite, Wisconsin? And this was uh, staff members from the Division of Children and Youth. Elizabeth Brandeis, Rauschenbusch, a professor of economics here at UW, was part of that, very interested in women issues, child labor laws, etc. And uh, lo and behold, I uh, go back in the labor camps for the next three years from that one demonstration program we were serving after three years uh, 150 uh, children uh, were seven centers but what it did it gave me a, not only serving the children but providing a wonderful experience for them but uh, it gave me a different picture the parents would approach me about their working conditions about being hurt about the low wages etc so I didn't start from being a migrant worker and then organizing a union I went back into the labor camps and had these experiences with the parents. So by the time I started organizing a farm worker, I'd walk into a migrant labor camp. All the children, teacher, teacher, you know, because I had been associated with the child care centers for three years and I had been working with the migrant workers for 10 years and then uh, with their children uh, in the child care program. So uh, it was uh, just about approaching them and trying to do something. And while I'm in Madison uh, uh, reviewing some of the work we had done in the sun- of summer, somebody came up with a, a newspaper from uh, L.A. And they said, look, Salas, what the farm workers are doing in California, they're marching from Deleno. And it's Dolores Huerta and Cesar Chavez uh, pro, uh, on strike against uh, grape growers in Deleno, marching to Sacramento protesting uh, working conditions. And I said, that's what we need to do here. All this work we're doing at the daycare centers are great, but we need to do something about the wages and working conditions. So in 65 and 66, early 66 in the spring, I go back to organize for the strike. And that's how the movement starts, uh, uh, trying to get the workers to, first of all, march and protest and uh, 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 their working conditions and later to establish Obreros Unidos. We'll talk about that march in a minute, but I think um, it would be helpful just to focus a little bit on those wages and conditions specifically, what were the workers telling you 
that they wanted to change? What were the wages? Well, and Wisconsin, Wisconsin had a minimum wage law at the time that covered farm workers, but the uh, the uh, processors, the multinational corporations, had convinced the industrial commission that uh, in, made the enforcement of those minimum wages in a piece rate system. So in the Door County, uh, the migrant workers that harvested the cherries were paid by the pail. Right, and uh, you weighed the pail so much, and you got paid by the pound. In the cucumber industry that we spent uh, my early years uh, working as a migrant worker, and that we were now organizing into a union, it was a piece rate system where the lower, the the smaller cucumbers, the cucumbers were graded, and the smaller ones were paid at a higher rate than the larger ones, which were just disposed of. Some of them were made into relish, but the smaller ones were jarred. Mm -hmm. They would be pickled uh, all winter on site, and then taken from the vats, and then uh, jarred. Uh, uh, in the processing plants, et cetera. So the piece rate system, according to the processors and the growers, equaled the minimum wage system, but it didn't. In 1965, Elizabeth Brandeis Rosenbusch got some money from the federal government to conduct a wage and working condition study, and we finally got the data that demonstrated the fact that they weren't being paid a minimum wage. And we started creating a lawsuit that eventually was resolved in 1968 here in, in, in Madison by Judge Maloney that said the minimum wage law based on the piece rate system for cucumbers does not equal a minimum wage we need to uh, establish, first of all, who is the employer? Nobody wanted to be the employer of the migrant worker. The grower where the migrant state said, no, wait a minute, I grow the crop, but I sell it to Libby's and Heinz and Dean's Food and that. They're the processor. The processor no. The migrant is an independent contractor. He comes uh, to get out of the sun. And, you know, in other words, there was no employer-employee relationship until Maloney and the union said, the processors of the employee, Maloney, said they're obliged to keep records and to make sure that the workers get a minimum wage. I think, uh, you go, know, go a, a, a record setting, by the way, uh, 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 a statue uh, that was eventually uh, used uh, throughout the country as such uh, in terms of the enforcement where the documentation, that piece rate system that were paid all over the country for a wide variety of crops uh, were challenged by the, uh, first of all, the wage uh, uh, study by uh, Brandeis, and then later by the court case of, uh, of Maloney, and later on by the employer-employee relationships we were trying to establish as we struck and uh, attempted to organize potato industry, cucumber industries, and then the canning companies. Yeah. And I, I think it's important um, to point out, because in today's immigration context, people might not be aware that almost exclusively all the migrant workers are U.S. citizens, right? Yes, the yeah. majority the majority of the workers, in addition to being family-based from this side of the border, yep. there were some... There were some Mexicans that came from across the border, but not from the interior of Mexico or from, you know, uh, mm -hmm. uh, the present uh, state of uh, immigrants and refugees right. that we see at the border at this time. Mm -hmm. Most of them is, uh, is an in-state migration from the Texas borderlands to, uh, to the Midwest. Okay. Uh, presently, the 15,000 migrants that used to come in here has been reduced to 5,000, and the majority of them now are Mexicans and quite a number of male workers and quite a number of them are undocumented. In the canning and In the canning, meat packing, uh -huh. meat uh -huh. capping, uh, uh -huh. meat packing uh, 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 and related fields, yes. Mm -hmm. 
So we're going to jump back here. Now we got to the moment where you started organizing. (laughs) All the workers are coming to you to tell you about these conditions you were just telling us about and say, hey, how can you you help us out? Um, Tell us about your your vision of organizing farm workers um, and and the focus on the family in particular. Yeah, well, the the uh, first of all, the uh, the. the first March, the, the, we had a meeting, and, uh, and we were meeting with the farm workers, and uh, we were identifying the demands that we are you know, going down the list, just like everybody does when they're taking a labor action, and, uh, and the uh, enforcement of the laws at that time were a primary concern. But the other one of the workers is, what we, what we need is, we should call this March a March for Respectability. And I thought to myself, how are we going to put respectability as a logo or, you know, in a banner? How do, how do we communicate that? But then when we start talking about what we should we call ourselves, uh, uh, we identified ourselves as Obreros Unidos. And if, as you know, in Spanish, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, word trabajador is a translation for worker. And in California, they were using the term campesino. And even the the uh, lauded uh, Teatro Campesino by uh, by Valdez uses that term, uh, 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 and it was very common in California. We didn't want anything to do with the term Campesino because in Spanish it also identified as this whole feudal system, uh, you know, that we were trying to uh, uh, get as far removed as possible from Mexico and come up with a different relationship with employer employees. So we we called ourselves obreros from the word the root word being obra, which obra can be used, uh, an artist can call his, uh, his work an obra. In other words, something of value mm-hmm. that we're producing. Farm workers are producing here in the state of Wisconsin and elsewhere something of value. We're obreros. And that, that uh, you know, spread throughout the uh, industry. And, and we started all calling ourselves obreros as such because of of that term, so self-identification as such, and you see in the posters of the uh, we first called the meeting uh, uh, for the march and later for strike. One of the things I asked Cesar Chavez when I talked to him, and I called him on the phone, and uh, when I talked to uh, kids on the phones, uh, they get a big kick out of the fact that there were operators in the telephone mm-hmm. system. Really, yes, I said, you know, all you had to do, person-to-person call Cesar Chavez, the Atlanta, California. And I didn't know the doggone number of the farm workers in California, but the operators would find it, and they would do it only for person-to-person. If they didn't find Cesar, you know, I wouldn't pay. But uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, when I finally found Chavez, I was struck with a newspaper that I saw in Madison of the farm workers that flagged that the pre-Columbian Thunderbird symbol. So what basically I was asking Chavez, let, can, you, well, can we use a national, at that time they were called the National Farm Workers Association, can we use the NFWA's uh, Thunderbird symbol for our own march that we're planning in 1966? Yes, he says, will you help us with the, uh, with the great boycott? Why are you, and he explains to me why they're going, uh, growing, uh, boycotting grapes. He says, you know, not only are we boycotting grapes, but in Wisconsin, the grape uh, winemakers, do you know that Wisconsin consumes more brandy per capita than anybody else in the union? I says, really? I says, so we want to go after this, not only the grape growers, but the winemakers who are part of the industry that, uh, that you guys are crucial for our victory. So from 1966 until 1968, that we're organizing, we're also supporting the grape boycott right here in Madison, setting up picket lines in front of the grocery stores, asking customers uh, not to support not only the Unidos, but also the California uh, 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 grape uh, 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 strikers. You know. 
You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with Jesus Salas, author of the new memoir, Obreros Unidos, The Roots and Legacy of the Farm Workers Movement, just out from Wisconsin Historical Society Press. There's going to be an event coming up on September 20th, a book launch event at the Wisconsin Historical Society, uh, also sponsored by the Wisconsin Book Festival, with the author Jesus Salas. So we're getting a sneak preview of that here today. If you have a question for Jesus Salas about his work as a labor organizer and advocate for migrant farm workers, or want to share a personal story related to the farm worker movement, please do give us a call at 608 256 2001 extension 9. So, you were just talking about uh, the vision of uh, the first organizing you did with farm workers and, and coming up with this idea of Obreros Unidos and connecting with Cesar Chavez and the Great Boycott and the um, United Farm Worker Movement in California. Um, and one of your first big actions was this march in 1966 from Watoma up in the Central Sands to Madison that you helped organize. Tell us about this march and what its goals were. Well, the uh, the uh, Wisconsin had a very rich history of uh, social and progressive legislation, and I mentioned earlier the minimum wage law that covered migrant workers, basically uh, the protected women also. Uh, it had a Wisconsin Employees Relations Commission that protected uh, farm workers that we eventually made uh, very effective uh, uh, use of in the next uh, four years. Uh, 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 so the first demands of the uh, of the march were the enforcement of the migrant uh, 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 um, uh, uh, laws that were in the books that uh, that were not being enforced, including housing. Uh, Brandeis had uh, Professor Brandeis here from UW Madison had found that of the approximately 500 labor camps, and you have to look at the labor camps that what the structures in the farm. What are the structures that you find a farm? Where there's a household where the farmer and his family lives, there's a barn, there's a sheds, there's the uh, the uh, 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 garages perhaps for the agricultural implements or his personal cars. It was those units that were converted into housing that uh, became uh, uh, the migrant uh, housing, including barns. Uh, 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 you can imagine trying to remove you know, where Barnes had uh, lived uh, for uh, a number of years and try and live in there, mm-hmm. see if you can get the smell out of the out of that unit. But the uh, there were some there were some uh, growers uh, processors that had had built housing. We found uh, new housing being built in the lettuce industry, where the growing season is a little bit lar- longer, and the investment could be made by the local. Uh, 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 growers, the the growers claimed when we demanded an enhancement of the uh, migrant housing that they didn't have the funds to be able for a short term growing season that we should go to the processors. The process, of course, at that time were saying we're not the employer of the migrant worker; they're living in the grower properties. So we so we had this issue in the enforcement that we ran into that, uh, and then we had no definition of the employer until I said 1968. Here's 1966. So we had to battle for several years until we could identify. And then we ran into some difficulty. And right after the march, uh, I was broke. I stayed home. I went to return, waiting on tables in my dad's restaurant. But the closest industry to the restaurant that my dad had uh, 
had uh, uh, run in Watoma was the potato industry. So workers started coming from the potato industry to come in and resolve some of the issues where the Anglo workers did all the mechanized aspect of the potato processing, picked up the harvest and did the tractors, drove the trucks in the inside the warehouses, uh, drove the uh, the uh, the um, uh, forklift trucks or whatever. It was the migrants who washed the dirty, you know, washed the potatoes, had to sort them out, bagged them, you know, uh, 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 you know, did all that work. So we wanted, we wanted uh, uh, to change those working conditions, and we wanted uh, 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 standard minimum wage, uh, on, you know, the standard stuff, uh, 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 paying for overtime and that. The uh, James Bond Potato Company was the first one that we organized. Got wind of the fact that we were organizing by signing membership cards at the time, and he started calling the workers in to uh, then to uh, uh, interrogate them as to whether they belonged to the union and uh, sign affidavits that they didn't. Anybody that didn't sign, whether he was a member of the union or not, got fired. And not only that, but got thrown out of the labor camp that he owned. So here we had two issues, workers getting fired, being thrown out of labor camp, completely unprepared for uh, that. We finally got to the sheriff where uh, his deputy was removing the workers from the labor camp and said, look, these workers have been deducted for living in the labor camp a couple of dollars a, a, a week. What, according to the lawyer that I just talked to, they deserve to be given a 30-day notice, and it worked. We, uh, the, uh, he uh, insisted to Burns that he could not remove them for 30 days, so that's as long as a strike held. We filed uh, uh, unfair labor practices against for the interrogation methods that he had used, but the hearing wasn't until December. So here we got a problem. We are covered by the law. The strike is in the fall, but the hearing the, the, uh, is not given to us. In, uh, we got a favorable decision in December. Burns is, uh, is uh, found guilty of unfair labor practices for the interrogation methods, etc., but uh, uh, workers are gone. We couldn't keep a strike for three months. We didn't have the resources uh, uh, to maintain them uh, on the picket line. So in the following year, when we started organizing the cucumbers, we said we got the law, but we had to better use it. We cannot strike because we're running the same situation. Workers will be thrown out of labor camps. We'll lose their jobs. The cucumbers will or, or lose their value. Their plants will perish, whatever. Uh, so we have to make a better use. So we started walk, walking out as a means of showing the employer that, uh, that we represented the majority of the workers. And we do it during the noon hour. So they wouldn't get fired because this was their time, et cetera. And then I got closer to uh, uh, John Schmidt, the president of AFL-CIO. He then, uh, he then provided lawyers that the AFL were lawyers to the AFL-CIO, and there was none better than the previous Goldberg and Allman celebrated law firm that represented the AFL-CIO, and, uh, and uh, 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 we got their lawyers to represent us. So now we call it an emergency meeting in the summer of 67 uh, because of the perishable nature of the crop. They called the a hearing, ordered an election, and we win the election of 405 to 8. So all across the industry here, they were saying migrants were not uh, 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 organizable. They, the social scientists, I remember coming here to the university, oh, migrant workers, you know, they're, they're not, never long enough in one place. They're too poor to pay dues. They can never sustain a union. They have no relationships to organizations. You know, they're not. And you have the same uh, attitudes about 
when I moved to Milwaukee to help the boycott with people that work in the uh, in the uh, tanneries, in the foundries, that uh, these workers, you know, well, you know, they were un- unorganizable. There were there were sectors of the economy or the labor force that people didn't pay any attention. That labor unions didn't. Uh, and of course, you had the right to work laws all over the South and the West. So, uh, uh, but we showed the workers, given the opportunity, protected by the law, supported by the uh, labor unions, could form a union, and mm-hmm. we did. Only problem is, Libby said, we're not going to. Neg- we came to the first negotiating table. They said we don't. We don't feel that we are obliged to negotiate with you. We're moving the whole operations of the cucumber industry out of state. They're going down south where they have the right to work laws and they don't have to uh, deal with the union. So here we go again. Unfair labor practices against Libby's. What it'll take now multi years. Meanwhile, the, this. Uh, this tremendous victory that we had for farm workers of few years now out the window. And employers are saying, see what happens to workers that join the union? You're going to lose your jobs, like Salas did with the farm workers. So we, we chased Libby's into the processing plants. They had three canning companies, Libby's in uh, Hartford, Wisconsin, in Jacksonville, in uh, Janesville, and in uh, uh, Jackson around uh, that area. Mm-hmm. And we concentrated on Hartford because we knew all the workers there. My dad had come there since the early 40s, and we organized walkouts uh, uh, in support to try to force uh, 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 Libby's to back to the negotiating table and planting of cucumbers. didn't work. Chavez finally, after three years of organizing a great boycott and meeting with him, been to Wisconsin, and Jesus, this multinationals here in Wisconsin is everywhere. We got to do it together. If you help me win the great boycott, you know, in California, we'll come from California and help you organize here in Wisconsin. And I believed him. I don't know why I believed him, but who was to know? that it was going to take five years of organizing in order to get a victory in the Great Boycott. So here I come. A farm boy lived all my life in migrant labor camps and in rural areas, coming to Milwaukee, a labor-rich community, and organizing the labor unions in the community to uh, support the Great Boycott. What are the key ingredients to Obreros Unidos' success that you describe really well in the book? Is this idea of social unionism? And well, that, yeah, that, that's what that's what sustains the workers. Because people say, "How come you had all these years of organization, you never had a contract?" Well, like you say, social unionism. This is a whole mutual aid society. Uh, organizations is a benevolent uh, organization, dues-paying, self-sustaining. What we organize a. Uh, uh, Published a newspaper, David Giffey, who I met at Oscar State when I went right after uh, high school, had just gotten back from Vietnam, was working for the Appleton Post Correspondent, left his job, came over, and started publishing our union newspaper. Uh, uh, Fred Kessler, the youngest member of the state legislature, was at the rally when we ended the march in 1966, started telling him about uh, the enforcement of migrant uh, uh, legislation. He said, we need some lawyers. So we organized a volunteer lawyers for all these issues we were having in the labor camps with wages. So we're we're providing relief as, even though we don't have a contract, Mm -hmm. we established a gasoline co-op. 
so that as soon as the tourists and the migrants came, all the local gas stations used to raise the, the prices of the gallon. We set up a membership for all the members at a lower rate than every gasoline. So probably could, we had a lift that could provide services for their, their vehicles as they travel from other places and from there to other, uh, to other sites. With the University of Wisconsin, Professor Goodfriend and Brandeis, we, uh, there was an STD uh, uh, outbreak, and the University Hospitals at that time was part of the university system, had this blue bus. It was a laboratory that they used to send and park right off of uh, Mifflin Street. All the young folks that wanted to come in and that there was uh, 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 concern about their uh, 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 being uh, 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 whatever SET uh, uh, was going on, Uh infected, infection, could be uh, no questions asked. Mm -hmm. The laboratory was set up right there. They didn't have to come to the clinic or whatever, no questions asked. There would be treatment for it. When I talked to Dr. Kufren Jesus, he says, if you find me a place in Watoma, I'll take the blue bus on weekends and we can open up a migrant health clinic. So we went to all the members that we had in all these places and we said, there's a clinic coming on weekends now. And we have uh, in the book, we have pictures primarily of who? Of, uh, of, uh, of women and children mm-hmm. coming in for the first migrant clinic. By the way, the co-op didn't last because once the migrant workers, the local people would, wouldn't come in and, uh, and, uh, and uh, at the service station. So... But the migrant health clinic is still going on 50 years later. But that, that notion of social unionism, when I went to Milwaukee and, uh, and got involved in community development issues, some of the uh, 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 poverty programs were not servicing Latinos as such, and we started going into United Migrant Opportunity Services and changing that focus from daycare into advocating on behalf of adult learners uh, uh, trying to open up uh, the uh, MATC to enhance their vocational skills uh, so they could do more than just work in a 10 uh, ten Milwaukee area technical In the Milwaukee college. area, yeah. That's, mm-hmm. That was the issues that were, that were going on at, uh, at, uh, at that time. And, of course, with strong support with the labor unions throughout because that's, I went to Milwaukee to organize it. But there's another thing that's going on. The, the African Americans had been demanding for the last 200 days, a, a, a open house ordinance. What yeah. period are we talking about This here is exactly? 1968 mm-hmm. when I moved to, uh, to Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. I moved to 524 and West National. The Archdiocese funded Centro Hispano provided me a back room. Three blocks down the street at Allen Bradley, Father Grappi and the uh, uh, NAAC Youth Council is marching from the north side, demanding equal employment opportunities. So I walk over from... Uh, from uh, my offices for the great, po- great boycott, walk down three blocks and I meet uh, Father Grappi and the youth council. Never survived the experience. I had been organizing and picketing for the last four years. Informational picket, don't buy grapes, I'm primarily housewives, etc. I learned about direct action. Grappi would tell me, you know, Jesus, you do a great job with the boycotting and providing the leaflets. But you got to get a little bit into direct action. I says, what is direct action for the grape? Well, if the uh, grocery store doesn't want to um, doesn't want to remove the grapes, you create a little bit of tension in there. Don't wait until the uh, customers come in. Go out to the parking lot and go over there. You know, ask them not to shop there, rather than you know. So that I started uh, implementing what the uh, MWC Youth Council had been uh, uh, 
uh, implemented for the last couple of years of direct action. And when uh, we got into community development, some of these agencies, the Republicans at that time were removing, again, social and progressive legislation, the, uh, the uh, supportive services the, the Indian families uh, had here in the state of Wisconsin, uh, so-called welfare cuts. Mm-hmm. They were claiming that the reason that migrants, and including blacks, were moving from the south here was because of higher welfare benefits or such, which is the furthest thing from the from the truth. Ever since we were coming here from the 40s, we came here to work, right? So we, I got involved with Father Grappi in uh, opposing the welfare cuts by the Republican legislature. We had a march here to the state capitol in 1969, occupied the the uh, the state a little bit too long there, occupied the uh, the assembly room, and they called the National Guard with fixed bayonets, and they got us off, and you know, uh, 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 the uh, legislature ordered the arrest of Father Grappi. Uh, federal Judge Doyle says, no, legislature is not judge and jury or sheriff. You cannot arrest a citizen in the state of Wisconsin. So then they got Grappi and me and three of the welfare recipients for damages to property. So this started the whole movement of, uh, of, uh, of uh, direct action activities in conjunction with the the uh, African-American community for the desegregation of the schools, establishment of the bilingual program. So we joined efforts in this. I joined the, uh, uh, it became a joint effort between Latino and African-Americans. The community development aspect had another thing. We, as we were taking over these agencies, United Migrant Opportunity Service, Father Maurice, Resigned from the center spana who I had initially moved there mm-hmm. to, uh, uh, to work uh, for the boycott. He resigned, but so a Latino could uh, uh, be hired and run the center spana, the archdiocese fund. The uh, uh, Office of Economic Opportunity had employment uh, uh, funds coming into the area. We opened up an employment uh, offices in the near south side. 16th Street Clinic had just established, again, with support of the university hospitals providing doctors and interns. So we had hundreds of these now with all of these five or six uh, agencies that were providing services to the Latino families. But in order to really administer those agencies properly, we needed access to the University of Wisconsin. At that time, the University of Wisconsin in uh, Milwaukee uh, out of 25,000 students, all the Latinos could sit around one table. Uh, uh, and uh, some of those same conditions existed here in, uh, in Madison when it came to graduate school later on. So the focus of uh, the university came to the forefront, but not just necessarily to enhance the college prep or the individuals, but to assist the development of the community-based organizations mm-hmm. that required these hundreds of young people that were now part of this community of social services that needed certification. You can't teach without MPS or certificate. You can't administer these programs without having some college degree. You can't teach uh, adult learners without knowing what, how do you develop a mm-hmm. curriculum. So the University of uh, uh, Wisconsin and Milwaukee and later University of Wisconsin and Madison became an integral part of the movement because of, uh, of the conditions of, uh, of the community-based organizations and the enhancement of those organizations that, by the way, are still ongoing. The clinic's still going on. UMass is 50 years old. Center Spine is still and going on. UMass, you know, again, what does that stand United for? Migrant Opportunity Services yeah. that started out as a, uh, as a, uh, as a OEO-funded program for daycare. Mm-hmm. Now it's a multi-state uh, 
you know, $25 million plus uh, uh, services, uh, Latina Resource Center, vocational training, food pantries, you know, uh, uh, services. Uh, the clinic that was just one storefront in uh, in uh, the 16th Street uh, uh, offices uh, now called Cesar Chavez serves over 40,000 uh, Latinos and neighbors in uh, in uh, Walker's Point uh, neighborhood and et cetera, et cetera. You know, yeah. the La Causa Daycare Center now is a chartered school, serves only not only uh, child care but elementary kids, and mm-hmm. that is uh, history. And all of this, you can go any community in the United States and you will find this nexus of uh, social service and educational uh, uh, and health-related activities in like a 10 or 12-block area serving uh, this, uh, this community. You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM. That's Jesus Salas, author of the new memoir, Obreros Unidos, The Roots and Legacy of the Farm Workers Movement. I'm Douglas Haynes, and we have a few minutes left here today. If you want to give us a call before we wrap up here at the top of the hour, it's 608-256-2001, extension 9. We'd love to hear from you. But in this time we have left, Jesus, um, the story, I've been totally gripped by by the story and this holistic ver- vision of organizing that you've told. What lessons um, can we draw from this story of the legacy of the farm workers movement for the labor movement today and really reinvigorating a holistic version of, of human well-being that you describe so powerfully there? And what can labor do now to um, to recapture that yeah. vision. Well, first of all, you know, uh, uh, John Schmidt, the president of AFL-CIO, and a whole number, UEW, I can start naming the leaders of this, uh, the School for Workers here at the university that trains uh, the leaders of the uh, of the uh, labor movement here in the state of Wisconsin. The, uh, uh, the nature of the workforce as a family workforce allowed us to organize the whole family as such. Uh, uh, I think that the labor movement would be enhancing their strength in dealing with the kind of situations that they have today if they organize a whole family rather than just the head of the household. You can't have a women's movement. Well, we couldn't have uh, organized a women's movement or a youth movement uh, 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 without organizing the whole families. Uh, the other aspect is the social unionism that that focus, uh, the migrants focus not just on enhancing wages and working conditions, but as I indicated, the newspaper, the lawyers, the gasoline co-op, the migrant health-related field. Uh, 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 the social unionism is part of the social incorporated any aspect of that that I indicated and other related uh, 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 services that can be uh, that can be provided to uh, working men and women now I think will will strengthen the, the labor movement mm-hmm. and provide more services uh, uh, where the labor the labor, the labor unions are not just social service organizations. We see them already being a crucial uh, 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 aspect of the political movement because of their participation in the political parties, in voter registration, in protecting the uh, the right to vote, and that you already have the unions involved in that. I think it's uh, it's something that uh, other activities that I mentioned uh, mm-hmm. uh, under social unionism that could enhance and so continue to support the whole family, in particular women, youth, 
uh, 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 programs. We we enhance recreational services. We provided dances back in those days for the youth. Cause there was nothing to do in yeah. the migrant labor camps. You know what? Go into town and uh, purchase groceries and then come back to the labor camp. So we organized baseball camps between one labor camp against the other. Because why? You know, just being in the labor camp, fine. You were relaxing and you didn't have to work. But no, we we needed these activities. Yep. And uh, and I think if that kind of vision for the uh, the labor movement, I think, would enhance their participation, youth and uh, recreational and supportive, academic supportive services, mm-hmm. uh, a whole area of services that union. And they have the capabilities of... Uh, uh, to do that, I mm-hmm. think it's a matter of focusing their energies as yep. such, and and many are, many are. You see them uh, involved in health-related fields, uh, etc. But uh, certainly, the political aspect mm-hmm. I use as a good example. Hey, so I'm going to jump in here because we have a caller who I want to bring in before we have to wrap up here. Um, Bill. Yes. Aces. Do you hear me? Yes. Yes, hey. we can hear you. Okay. I wanted to comment on uh, Jesus's reference to direct action. I spent uh, two years with Cesar Chavez and Manuel Chavez, uh, not during the grapes, but during the lettuce boycotts you know, from 70 to 72. I wanted to point out that the state of Wisconsin is dependent on 86,000 jobs pertaining to trade with Mexico, which is, which is $3 billion the state of Wisconsin. And if you look at the statistics surrounding that, you see that the Wisconsin dairy industry would completely collapse. I believe it's dependent upon something like 70% of Latino, Latina labor. And I recall back then, uh, we were basically defeated at the borders. And uh, the Kennedy family brought us a fair amount of money. I believe it was 20000 I don't recall exactly the amount. But what we did with that money was we purchased individuals to prevent, prevent people from coming across the border and subverting our field activities. I was curious as to what form of direct action Mr. Salas sees in the future with respect to the true vulnerability of Wisconsin to this issue of trade and Latino Latino labor. Thank you very much. Right. Yeah. This I think this is a this is a very important point uh, uh, that that uh, he has brought up. Uh, but there was a difference of opinion between uh, uh, among the farm worker leaders in, uh, in uh, the the point that he raises about seeing the uh, the uh, the. Uh, uh, the Mexican uh, laborers come in and competing or breaking strikes or challenging, uh, being used by the processors primarily against uh, American farm workers uh, uh, was a, was a challenge by the Texas Valley farm workers. And Antonio Orendine had a different strategy in that we wanted to organize those borderland farm workers whether they be undocumented or Texas farm workers. In other words, we wanted, we wanted uh, 
whoever was on the field, whether that individual was uh, uh, undocumented or was a Texas farm worker, we organized them into one union. And that, that, that we tried to do. In other words, we had to do something about those workers being used as strike breakers and coming in or uh, depleting uh, uh, the uh, wages uh, of the Texas farm workers. And the only way that we saw us doing this in good faith was organizing across the border and organizing once they came uh, on this side of the border. Uh, whether they were undocumented or, or not. I'm going to have to jump in there. I'm afraid we have to leave it there. Jesus, we've run out of time. We could talk for hours more, but you've so, been listening to Public Affair today. I'm your Monday host, Douglas Haynes, and I've been talking with Jesus Salas, author of the new memoir, Obreros Unidos, The Roots and Legacy of the Farm Workers Movement. He'll be doing an event on September 20th at the Wisconsin Historical Society to launch the book. But Jesus, it's been a real privilege having you here in the studio oh, with in me particular, today. Uh, I'm particular our Labor Day to talk about these issues uh, that are important to all of us, not just to migrant workers, but to all men and women who work. Absolutely. Thanks to our engineer today, Andrew Thomas, as well, producer Jade Isiri Ramos, and news director Charlie Pittman. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today on A Public Affair here at WRT 89.9 FM Madison. Stay tuned for Madison Book Beat. Don't start no fights if you cannot predict the outcome. Don't make donations where you can, I'll get your dough back. 